So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, grateful to be sober today. Uh, grateful to be positive. How about you, my friend, David? I am grateful to be sober and, and mostly positive today, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired, but positive. It's been a productive busy week yeah. for me. And, uh, you know, I got more activity logged up, uh, you know, lined up for the, for the days and weeks ahead, but I'm awfully glad, uh, to have most of my wits around me and not to have some, uh, tyrannical addiction, stealing half of my attention and 75% of my energy and 90% of my intelligence. Uh, <laughs> I can at least bring, you know, yeah, a fair amount of myself to most of the day. It's yeah. a it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing, and you know sometimes I forget that um, everything I'm enjoying about my life right now uh, would not happen if I were still yeah. active in my addiction. I'm you yeah. know I I uh, we spent uh, Easter at my parents, and I was watching my two little. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law came watching my two little uh, grandsons. One is mm-hmm. uh, just uh, about 11 months old. So he's, this is all a blur, you know, to him, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Jackson, but Patrick is about uh, to, he's about two and a half, just over two and wow. a half. And Already. so, the, oh yeah. And the concept of an Easter egg hunt is like, <laughs> it's, it's like, a, <laughs> it's like war games out in the front yard for him. He's like, he yeah, spots yeah. it, he runs for it, he dives on it, he picks it up, throws it in his basket, you know, gets yeah. in and, uh, and it's just, you know, it's, I mean, it's absolutely really fun and his mom and dad are really cool and his dad, uh, you know, paints up like the Easter bunny, uh, paints mm-hmm. his face up, puts on some fake ears and some funny fuzzy slippers and, and gets out there and just acts crazy with him. And, um, oh, you know, wow. Lauren, Lauren calls him the COVID bunny because he, <laughs> they, they took their picture with him this year instead of the Easter bunny at the mall, because Lauren said, you know, who in their right mind lets their kid go, you know, sit on a stranger's lap in a pandemic and get their picture taken. But, um, but you know, I was standing out there and I was just thinking, uh, this is, I mean, this is always a gift. I mean, anybody that lives to experience that is a gift, but, but this is really a gift in the, in the recovery sense, because, uh, you know, there was a day when I didn't know if we were going to get to do anything that looked like that because of the damage that I had, um, visited upon myself and the people I love and, 
uh, all of that. So, you know, yeah, I, I just reflect on that and, um, with great gratitude. So, and I had similar feelings over the weekend or over the week. I just got back from six days in the mountains of North Georgia, went to support my son who, uh, you know, ran a trail race up through the mountains. Mm. You know, one of those, he's a, he's a crazy guy. You know, it's a 55 mile race with 10, (laughs) 10, 10,000 feet of, uh, elevation change. He's got to climb 10,000 feet, run 50, 54.7 miles, uh, cross, you know, fording streams that are hip or waist deep, crawling under fallen trees, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, so we went to meet him and his wife and two kids. Kristen wow. came along with, with her three kids. And, uh, you know, by rights, our family, I shouldn't be a part of that celebration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I shouldn't be there. And not only am I there, um, I'm there and I'm wanted and I'm, uh, I'm key to the weekend and I'm participating and I'm emotionally present as well as physically present. Yeah. Such a gift. Yeah. Such yeah. a gift. It is. It is a gift. And, um, you know, our, our guest today has a, a story of, uh, appreciating his, uh, full mm-hmm. circle into, uh, you know, getting into the work that he's doing, uh, at the community that he, uh, that he left, uh, when yeah. his addiction was still driving the bus. So, I mean, that's a, I, yeah. that's a terrible teaser that I just tried to weave together, but, um, but yeah, it, but with a lot of gratitude, he's expressing this. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful conversation. You're going to be glad you downloaded this one. Oh, and once again, uh, David, you have uh, brought into the studio, our virtual studio here, another five-star guest. Uh, Why don't you introduce Chance Allen to the audience? Yeah, this is Chance Allen, (laughs) as you said. And Chance is uh, here in the greater Nashville area where we are. Uh, Chance is a licensed clinical social worker, but he's also a psychiatric nurse practitioner. He is a uh, and, and chance you can correct me if any of what I'm giving you in credentials here is uh, not altogether accurate, but uh, but but chance is a, a part of the Vanderbilt uh, mental health uh, team at, that works with recovery and addiction, and uh, he also has a number of clients that um, are are benefiting from uh, his work and, uh, possibly even some, uh, new music, uh, therapy type things that he's beginning to experiment with a little bit. And, um, but I know that he's doing some great things. And one of the reasons I wanted chance to join us was because, uh, there is such a connection between, uh, addiction and recovery and mental health and sometimes even co-occurring things that happen, uh, with people. And I'd love to hear about how, uh, we can even begin to spot those things. Things, uh, as people, you know, with loved ones that might be struggling. But Chance, welcome to the podcast. I'm going to quit talking and we'd love to just uh, hear your story. How did you land in the area of mental health? 
Thanks, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I feel blessed and very grateful that I can uh, share my story today, um, and that I'm I'm another day above ground. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because in the world today, uh, especially in addiction, there's there's uh, a lot of people who haven't made it, and with some of the new drugs that are out there on the street, um, you know, there's there's an increased chance of overdose and death, and um, even in the yeah. past few weeks, I've I've heard of it, uh, three people already who've passed away um, yeah. from this thing. So, and those types of overdoses. But um, on a positive note, since this is the positive sobriety <laughs> podcast, um, yeah, I can say that uh, I am, you know, very, very grateful and very clean today. Um, I've been, um, I've been blessed with. If I make it to May seventeenth, I'll have sixteen years of sobriety, um, and. Uh, I, I'm one of those who's been through the ringer when it comes to substances. Uh, um, my mind took me on a journey to find that next substance. Um, and uh, it, I journeyed through all the different substances, and including opiates in the end. So, mm. um, like I said, I'm, I'm very blessed to be alive today. Um, and when I got clean in 2005, there there was not as much uh, the, of the fentanyl going around or the car fentanyl. Right. Um, and if, if it was, I may not have been here at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, but um, kind of circling back around to what I do today, uh, and and do, I, will, I will correct one thing: um, the the social work degree I have, I have a, a graduate degree in social work, and they just started doing the LMSW at the time I graduated. So ah, we that's test it. And we became we became a licensed master social worker. I did not do the 3000 hours, uh, for, to become a licensed clinical social worker, mm -hmm. um, of supervision and such. Um, instead I, I went directly into the psychiatric nurse practitioner program at Vanderbilt and that dovetailed right into my graduate social work education. I was actually doing prereqs for the Vanderbilt program as I was, uh, finishing up my graduate social work degree. And, uh, and I dove into that where you become a, an equivalent of a bachelor's in nursing and then uh, a master's in, in nursing uh, coming out of there, graduating as a nurse practitioner. So in that uh, degree, um, um, uh, you you don't actually do 3,000 hours at the end of it. Um, you mm -hmm. get a job <laughs> and, and start going. So, um, so uh, I'm a licensed nurse practitioner and, and a licensed master social worker, but um, I'm so glad I did. Uh, I had the path that I did and did both of the degrees because there's some similarities and there's some differences between them. Um, mm -hmm. I guess going going back. Um, oh, and I guess I'll, I'll mention that the other job I have at Vanderbilt um, is uh, teaching in the nurse practitioner program. They decided to have me back after I graduated a few years later mm -hmm. to help teach. And so I've been teaching in the both levels of the program, the the RN level and the nurse practitioner, the APN level, advanced practice nurse. Um, and I uh, do some lectures on addiction uh, through the lifespan and addiction psych psychopharmacology. So how do we treat addiction with medicine? Yeah. Um, and also I'm a member of Vanderbilt Center for Addiction Research, which um, they are doing all kinds of heady research, uh, uh, neuroscience and microbiology and, um, way over my head. Um, but I am a, uh, uh, a clinician member of the team. So, mm -hmm. so I watch their, their lectures and understand about 50% of it. And then, and then I'm able to 
you know, kind of be a, a point person as a clinician and, and sort of translate some of that into practice. Um, but I, uh, it's a great thing to check out if you're interested and they have talks VCAR. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, well, I guess I could, I could go back and, and share experience. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Do that. That'd be awesome. All right. Um, and maybe talk a little about the co-recurring thing later, but, um, I, I actually grew up in Brentwood, Tennessee. Yeah. Um, where I think you're practicing. It is. is right, yeah. David? We're right here in Maryland farms. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So yeah, as a kid, I went to Maryland farms, that little country club back then before it was the Y. Right. And, and uh, and, as any good sort of addict type head would, I was somewhat impulsive in ways and, <laughs> and we would get into some trouble here and there. Um, but, but, um, but that was my stomping grounds, Brentwood before it looked like more of a city. Um, and uh, so 1976 is when we moved to Brentwood okay. um, and I was two years old. So, um, but as I, as I grew up um, around the age of 13 or 14, I started to, get into, uh, some things. Um, I was introduced, uh, uh, to my first beer. Actually, it was in the back of, in the back of the car on the way to, on a trip back when they used to drink more often when they were driving, you know, people, would, yeah. <laughs> there was a little cooler in the back of the car and I yeah. was like, Oh, I wonder what that tastes like. And I just tried like a half a beer, mm-hmm. nothing major. Um, but, I, I was just curious. Um, I, maybe I was like 11 years old and, uh, it didn't taste good. Um, and then, uh, but about the time I was 15 though, um, I rediscovered, uh, alcohol and for the first time drank a lot of it. Mm. And I started with a little bit mm-hmm. and I, I really couldn't stop. I mean, I felt like I just wanted more and I felt like it, it, it fit the puzzle pieces in my head perfectly. Like that was what I was looking for. I grew up as an anxious a child to some degree shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it solved that for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I was able to talk to people at the party. Um, and I thought, well, this feels really good. However, I, I drank so much that I pretty much blacked out, was stumbling around and I was the last person at the party. And my friend's, uh, mom, uh, came and, or, well, no, I guess it was my mom came and picked me up and, uh, I, I came home and she said that I threw up blood that night. Wow. Um, however, um, I was drinking PGA punch and it was red Kool-Aid. So it, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, it was blood or Kool-Aid. Uh, it could have been either or both. Um, and I got my first consequence. I couldn't go on a trip with my, my friend um, the next morning because mm. I felt so awful. Um, and I told myself I'm never doing that again. And I felt such guilt and shame for doing something like that. And uh, And then a few weeks later, I felt better. And next thing you know, I was at another party and, and I did it again. Um, didn't get the consequences the second time, but uh, at that point, I and I didn't really have a lot of knowledge around addiction or what was happening to me. I just knew that something felt good, and a lot of people were doing it, mm-hmm. and uh, I was looking for a crew to be a part of, and so I gravitated to this these people who were using. Um, and I I grew up in a private a private Christian uh, school um, in. Nashville, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, a small class. And there was just a few people who were using, you know, and then other people who weren't. And, uh, I kind of gravitated to those people and found a niche and, uh, and then kept going, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
interestingly, I my grades started to slip in, in junior and senior year, but I maintained my, my GPA. I think it was like a 3.55 when I graduated and I applied to Vanderbilt. So uh, my dad and my grandfather both went to Vanderbilt. Um, and I, I was like, oh, I, I want to go. And uh, it was in my heart. And uh, I got admitted. Um, and then I ended up getting caught having uh, done some substances. And, and really, at that point, um, my mind, I, uh, whatever was happening, it, it was almost, it was close to like a psychosis even. Mm-hmm. Um I had taken some LSD and and it didn't didn't come down for a day or two and and really had a lot of grandiose thoughts and just felt like I'd figured everything out but also felt a ton of fear like I was never going to come down and I told my parents what had happened and uh they took me to uh the psychiatric hospital to to get assessed to see if I needed a treatment and they said yeah you need to be and it wasn't suicidal so it wasn't an inpatient facility but but back in the day, Vanderbilt actually had like a 30-day treatment center, um, substance use disorder uh, mm-hmm. treatment center. And they said, yeah, you need to be in here. Um, and uh, and I think I had just turned 18 by that time. And I exercised my right as an adult. <laughs> and <laughs> mm-hmm. I said, I ain't going. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I think my dad exercised his right as a parent. <laughs> and he said, well, you ain't going to Vanderbilt. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, and, you know, for like as long as I was using, I would kind of in my mind think back to that moment and think my dad messed my life up. You know, it's all uh, his fault. Uh-huh. Um, and I held that resentment um, towards him for the longest time. And uh, a little later on, I'll explain kind of how that how that resolved itself. But it's part of the story. Um, so so therefore, um I kind of flailed around for a moment. Uh, they actually sent me to a college in Arkansas. Um, the psychologist I went to actually about after about three or four sessions, he told me that he couldn't help me. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. And he told my parents that the best that the best that that he he thinks that they could do is to send me uh, to this college in Arkansas, where there was a dry county. Um, it was called Arkansas College. Now it's Lyon College. And they said, uh, you know, we think. Uh, he said, I think. Maybe that, if anything, that might help him, you know. Uh, and so uh, I got there, and I lasted about two or three weeks, <laughs> and I got into some trouble uh, and substance related, you know, and and then ended up just not going to class, and um, yeah. and then dropped out. Um, yeah. So I see this pattern in uh, you know a lot of different a lot of different kids and young adults. Um, and those are the, some of the people I work with. In fact, you know, I, I can relate my story to them. I've even showed them my transcript as far as how it looks like an avalanche, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I kept going back to college thinking, I'll try one more time. And yeah. then I would end up doing a little better or then a little worse. But over time, it got worse. Um, and it took me till about, let's see, I graduated high school in 92. In about 1998, I finally uh I'd gotten to where I was so kind of tired, I guess, of school and trying um, that the last semester I went to, which ended up being at MTSU at that point, I didn't even withdraw from classes. I just failed out of everything. So that's the end of the avalanche. (laughs) I just kind of gave up and I said, forget it. Um, And and so at that point, I had a 2.2 grade point average. Um, And... uh, 
um, it's amazing what, you know, what has happened in recovery. Um, so, but, but there I was at 1998 and then around that time I had, um, my first child. So at 25, um, and, uh, and, and did not feel that I was ready for that, you know, uh, responsibility. It wasn't, uh, obviously it wasn't planned, but, um, at that point, um, things got more intense, of course. And so I was already still using substances. And then, and then I was introduced to opiates um, more heavily. So I discovered them. And, uh, and it didn't work out with, with parenting at that time. We couldn't work it out. And then and my kid with her mom moved away. And I felt some mo- most intense pain at that mm. point in my life. And, and the opiates started to take the place of that pain. And it became numbness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I dove right into that world of opiate use, um, and uh, and that's when things got worse. Yeah, <laughs> you mm-hmm. might expect. Um, and I ended up uh, hitting the bottom. And my parents discovered I was using opiates, and they finally kind of came around to like, oh, I think there's a problem going on here more than just what we even thought was going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and. Uh, I went to my first treatment center in 2002, Cumberland Heights, mm-hmm. and I uh, thought, now if I can just get off these opiates, I can still like yeah. smoke weed and drink beer and, you know, manage my life. And if I just, you know, I didn't know what was really keeping me from moving forward in life, but I thought that at least that I know I got to get off those. Um, and some cool things happened in Cumberland Heights um, that I probably, I don't have time to go into, but it was some spiritual things happened there. And, and then, uh, at the same time, in the middle of Cumberland Heights, somebody smuggled some some weed in and a teddy bear, and and they broke it out. And I thought, well, now I'm two weeks off of, you know, uh, heroin and this other opiate stuff, and I could probably use a little weed. And uh, so, you know, I smoked some of that in the middle of treatment. Little did I know that even that right there was re-triggering my brain, the nucleus accumbens area, um, and, and producing a sense of boredom, restlessness, and craving mm-hmm. um, that would then prime me for use again. <laughs> um, so as soon as I walked out of that uh, Cumberland Heights, uh, I, I walked out to the parking lot. It was my, my, my time to leave. And they said, now make sure you go to meetings when you leave here. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm not really a group person. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then this other guy handed me a Xanax out of his trunk in the parking lot. Wow. And I said, oh, thank you very much. I could use that. And uh, still didn't know that benzos could also trigger my brain in the same spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that again, that spot, nucleus accumbens, uh, sort of ventral tegmental uh, uh, midbrain area. Um, there's a guy named Nestler who did a great study on that that I, I use in, in my practice all the time. I, it's N-E-S-T-L-E-R. Um, there's this uh, graphic that he shows the different substances of abuse on a, on a, uh, a micro level, how they hit the nucleus accumbens and such, including cannabis and not all of the substances, but a lot of, good, a lot of ones. Um, and I use that to explain to people, um, you know, the whack-a-mole theory is, is real. Uh, mm-hmm. you stop one and you start another if you've seen it, yeah. <laughs> but they all kind of end up eliciting the same craving, uh, at the root, some more intensely than others. So, uh, so I left there and I went back to my friend's place after Cumberland Heights, uh, that, that night even, I think. And I said, Hey you guys, I feel so good to be clean. <laughs> and even though I kind of wasn't, and they were all doing their substances and, 
they said, why don't you just try a half a beer, you know, or actually they said, just try a beer. And I, I drank a half of one. <laughs> so I'll just take a half. One. And uh, within two days, I was back on everything again. Wow. So that yeah. was my next slide. Uh, and my next slide put me in a place where I was stealing from my parents eventually um, to get more. I went right, right back to opiates. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm taking from them thinking, well, they would give me this anyway if they knew the kind of situation I was in. So I was rationalizing how it was okay to do that because they would understand mm-hmm. yet I was stealing. Um, mm-hmm. And I uh, ended up basically they, they ended up making a very difficult decision with the help of my sister and they decided to uh, kick me out of the house. Um, mm. So I remember sleeping on the dog bed in the in the garage in the basement one night um, after that after the, I had been, I guess you you know kicked out of the house lovingly. <laughs> and uh, and then the next day I ended up you know asking for some money down at the Nippers Corner where I grew up down there and asking some people for some money and trying to kind of get my bearings and asking some friends if I could stay at their place and um, ended up living in a little house uh, behind what used to be Harding mall over there. Yeah. And some people took me in and thank, thank God for that. Um, and, uh, and I continued to use and, um, and I just kind of make it, you know, best I could. And it took about six months um, before I hit another bottom. And uh, I was asking a guy while I was sitting there on a, a bench outside of Walgreens one day for money. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? You know? <laughs> and mm. I thought, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, and it kind of like, it hit me. I'm like, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. You know, I came up kind of raised, like not to steal, lie, cheat, whatever. I was raised, you know, in a sort of a Christian foundation and kind of at least good, good moral ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, social capital had, had a school system that was helpful to me. Um, and uh, even though I didn't feel like I fit in a lot of ways, because I think a lot of people with addiction have that sort of mindset. It's like, where do I fit? Yeah. But, um, and I was shy and anxious and all that, but I still had a, I had supportive parents, which they proved, pro- proved to be supportive as time went on still. Um, and, but yeah, here I am sitting here asking for money and homeless, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I remembered some people at Cumberland Heights, uh, some of the things I heard there. And I remembered one physician, Dr. Murray Smith, over at a treatment center back in the day, it was New Life Lodge. And I remembered him saying, uh, you know, your addiction is like, it's like holding a gun to your brain. And it's like saying, uh, do this or die. And he said, now, if you look at the brain, you'll see the part of the brain that's the addiction center and, and, and it it's also the primal motivation center. It's that part of the brain that says you need to eat, to procreate, and to do these other things to live. The human race must survive. And and then in an addict, it also says you got to do that dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so there I was. You know, my motivation had been taken and tweaked, and and I was uh, I was eaten up. And there I was with the result. Um, and now there's different types of people with addiction. Some are more functional and there's even genetics behind that too. But, but I was less functional and there I was. And, uh, the coolest thing happened. I was sitting in that house that I was living in and I looked at the window and there was this tapestry on the window and I hadn't ever read it before. Uh, and one day I, I was just staring at it and, and then I said, well, oh, it's got words on it. And, uh, what does it say? And, I started reading it and it, and it was the footprints poem. Um, oh, wow. So this, this, 
this is a poem that was given to me at Cumberland Heights, actually, in my folder, mm-hmm. my introduction folder. Right. And uh, so that was the only other place I'd seen it. And and there it was on this tapestry in this in this house, you know, where everybody was uh, doing drugs and selling drugs and this and that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was it was like that one of those moments, you know, those spiritual moments. And and I felt like I had become more aware and I felt like for the first time there was some hope and it just things started to shift. Um, and I called my parents up and I said, Hey, I, I want to come home and I, I want to get clean. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I had that desire. And so they brought me back to the house willingly and probably with some uh, fear, <laughs> yeah. but, but I think they noticed something in me, you know, and it was apparently the will of the, the universe there that I would come back. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, uh, Dr. Mary Smith, uh, my dad actually went to Vanderbilt uh, in the same sort of four years around the time that Murray Smith went there. So they kind of knew each other a little bit, or at least knew people that knew people. That, and uh, my dad called him up and and he talked to me and he said, well, I tell you what, um, you know, uh, I think you need to go to treatment again. And I said, well, I've already been to treatment. And he goes, I think you missed something. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and I, I was like, Oh, I wanted to kind of punch him through the phone. I was like, you know, uh-huh. uh, and but enough willingness, you know, I'd been kind of beaten down enough, I guess. And I said, all right, fine, you know. And so the next treatment center I went to was Grant Run. It was in it was Serenity Center in Memphis, um, and they gave me food stamps and they and they gave me thirty five days. And I found something there. Um, I was ready to receive, you know. Um, I was ready to understand. And I understood that this was a disease and that there's this first step of powerlessness. And, oh, my gosh, now I see that my life was riddled with this. And that's why I kept getting worse and worse. Yeah. And that's why probably why I couldn't get through school. Um, that's probably why my motivation and my energy was going out the side and I was doing things I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I felt forgiveness for the first time. Um, with myself um, from a a spiritual standpoint I guess I felt like a a higher power kind of understood me and that it was connected Mm -hmm. with and um, even at that point I don't think my parents really understood me Um, but I felt like I was understood and I finally got it you know yeah and uh, I went through that uh, treatment um, and I ended up doing most of the steps um, I got out I was on fire. I felt like this is it. I'm, I'm going to go help somebody. And I went to my friend's house. <laughs> I took the, the AA book with me at that point and uh, and I told him, "All right, I'm going to get you clean." And I said, "Now I got food stamps. Now we're going to go to Kroger. I'm going to buy you some food, get some steak and whatever you want." And then we passed by the whipped cream aisle, and I saw it and I thought. Man, it'd be kind of cool to to huff some nitrous out of that whipped cream. I'm seven, 37 days clean, you know. Why why can't I do that? I mean, it should be, you know, it'd be fine. Mm-hmm. And so I bought some whipped cream and we went home and we huffed it. <laughs> okay. And next thing you know, my brain was triggered again because guess what? Same part of the brain, almost that allergic reaction. Yeah. Um, and I was in that cue-induced craving place, which was my friend's place without any kind of assistance of other people in recovery trying to do a 12-step call or anything. I just went on back in there. Yeah. And in mouse studies, they'll show that, you know, that, that, Q-induced craving is one of the main things that can lead us back um, when we're not spiritually fit, you might say. And mm-hmm. and so I ended up back on dope again. <laughs> yeah. 
And then finally, a few months later, um, uh, I continued to, one thing I kept doing in that treatment center is a guy told me to say a prayer in the morning and at night. So I kept doing that. When I got out of there, I kept doing that even though when I was using, I said, please help me. And I said, thank you at night. And sure enough, uh, uh, I felt the spiritual connection in that treatment center that I, uh, through working some steps and, and recognizing my illness and the first steps, I had insight. And then a miracle happened. I made an amends to someone, um, even though I was still using. Um, and then one day I was sitting in the, in the park and uh, I felt this peace come over me. And I was just kind of doing a little meditation, just sitting there and I mean, nothing too special. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I felt this peace come over me and uh, I felt at one with everything. Um, and uh, what others have called kind of like a spiritual awakening. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I've read about that and, and think that that was v correct. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and then uh, I, I lost the desire to use substances. Um, and I thought, well, surely, it, I mean, I thought they were joking about this, you know, in that 12 step thing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no way this freaking worked and um but sure enough from that from that day something shifted in my head something in my mind my heart um and and uh i lost the desire to use so i was so on fire at that point i thought i'm i want to hold on to this whatever this feeling of okayness is and i started going to meetings and uh i went to 500 something meetings in 500 something days uh as wow. i say it and wow. i didn't miss a one um and I started going to Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital and taking meetings into there once every uh, every Tuesday, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and they said, we need somebody for Tuesday nights that I'll be that person. And I, so I started giving back what what I'd found, you know, mm -hmm. and it was a very organic process. Um, I just wanted to share this. And uh, and so sure enough, that led to, uh, uh, you know, increased trust with my parents Um a peace in my heart. Um, it increased, uh, uh, I guess it decreased my motivation towards, you know, obviously using substances was gone. So the next thing you know, I had more gas in my fuel tank to just be normal in life. Right. So right. my trajectory in life started to go forward and in, in an upward fashion. Um, and I ended up applying to school. Um, and it was scary because I'm like, you know, history would show that, this doesn't work out. <laughs> and, uh, and lo and behold, I was able to, uh, I started school back in 2006 ish, six, six to seven. So it'd been almost eight years. Um, and, and sure enough, I was able to get to class, do my homework and things started to, uh, go well. And I made A's and then I was able to get my GPA up to 3.000 at the very end when I graduated, which then got me into the graduate school of yeah. UT. Um, and then by serendipitous means, um, my teacher, Sam McMaster at, um, UT at the time had, uh, lunch with the, the, the director of the nurse practitioner program at Vanderbilt. And she said, Oh, well, he should think about coming here. And I was doing an internship at Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital at the time. Uh, so I had gotten the taste of what psychiatry was doing. And I thought that was really cool. And I said, oh, I didn't know about nurse practitioners. Um, and so I applied and then I got into Vanderbilt. And then, <laughs> and then I, there I was at Vanderbilt. So, you know. So you made it back full, full circle. circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And so 
to finish that little story with my dad, um, I made amends to him after I got clean. I told my dad, I said, on our first family trip, uh, I said, uh, Dad, I just want to let you know that, you know, back in the day uh, when you told me that uh, you didn't want to send me to Vanderbilt because you were nervous that I was actually going to be able to, to, to you know, you didn't want to like put all that money into it. And then you didn't think I, I, I was ready. I said, you were right. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I never thought you would ever say that because <laughs> you know, I'd held that resentment for so long. And he literally was driving and he, he turned his head around like and was still driving, you know, uh -huh. just staring at me in the back of the van like. I never thought you'd say that. And uh, and so sure enough, the it, crazy enough, the year I graduated, 2000, mid-2012, well, we walk in the ceremony in 2013, uh, was, was the year I was going to like sort of graduate in the ceremony. It was the 50th year from my dad's graduation. So he was going to walk in the ceremony as a quink behind the chancellor on the same year. Oh, wow. Um, and lo and behold, he had a, uh, and he lived, but he had a heart attack a week before. So uh, I got to walk with him on his first walk in the hospital after triple bypass. And he's still alive today, like nine wow. years later. However oh, long it's been. And, and I walked in the ceremony and, uh, and we both like supported each other, you know? Wow. And, um, I mean, I just, the stories that come about in recovery are just beyond which I could ever have written myself. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> And so you started your practice uh, at Vanderbilt at what year? Yeah, so um, and uh, and uh, um, so I started my my practice. Actually, I worked at the ranch for about nine months, coming out of school, uh -huh. um, and uh, and then I moved into working at Integrative Life Center uh, around 2013. Yeah, yeah I started my private practice at the same time in 2013, and started teaching at Vanderbilt, which is where I still teach um that same year. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I moved out of Integrative Life Center about four years later. It was just it was too much to handle all the all the above, and mm -hmm. had to trim that off and um, continued practicing and uh, and working this primarily. Or uh, probably sixty percent of my people have addiction related disorders, um, mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, still teach at Vandy in, in that capacity full time. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, Chance, uh, when is medication appropriate in treating people who are uh, struggling with recovery? I know that's kind of a broad question, but I wanted to be sure and get to that, you know, before we had to get away, because yeah. I really am interested in um, hearing you uh, just share a little bit about that, because some for some people, that's a little controversial sometimes. All right. It's a complex question. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's a lot of different medications. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of, uh, or uh, ideas of recovery um, and the continuum of such things. Um, uh, if I can break it down to simple, um, there are such things as co-occurring disorders. So from depression to anxiety to ADHD to any other psychiatric mm -hmm. disorder um, mm -hmm. that for the best that we call them that, you know, as, as knowledge continues to expand about the brain. Right. Um, and, and there's sometimes that a person may have anxiety that lends them to drink more or to use more. Um, and it may, sometimes it may be the anxiety that's fueling the addiction. Um, I, I just misquoted myself. It's not necessarily. Okay. Let me go back. Anxiety could be increasing the substance use but there may not be an addiction involved, all right? Um, 
Okay. More often in the people I see, there's both. Um, there's an addiction-related disorder if they have the substance use issue, and, and there's an anxiety disorder. A lot of times people uh, will, uh, the brain likes to use the anxiety as the rationale for, I'm not, I don't have addiction, I I have anxiety and I just like to use to, to, to treat myself, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. that is the case sometimes, but oftentimes it actually then becomes a barrier um, because the, the brain can trick itself in believing if I could just get the anxiety treated, then I can drink successfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then mm-hmm. they repeat the cycle again. Right, right. But um, so it can go both ways. It, it can go both ways. Um, and so sometimes you have to parse that out and see how it goes, you know, just by trial and error. Um, there are medications for specifically addiction, such as naltrexone for opiate and alcohol mm-hmm. uh, dependence. Um, and that can be helpful. Um, it, it's worth a try. Um, naltrexone is not an opiate, so it is safe in, in that you don't become addicted to the substance itself or a even that is, is maybe not the proper term, terminology, but it's not a, a substance that's going to trigger the nucleus accumbens and that mm-hmm. that uh, is a maintenance drug. Um, then you've got buprenorphine, suboxone, uh, combination with naltrexone, uh, and that is a maintenance uh, mm-hmm. drug in that it, it is taking the place of an opiate. It is an opiate, um, but it's also reducing your chances of death, t- right. typically. Um, and that, that one is... Uh, easier to get on uh, because you don't have to take 10 days off of opiates to start naltrexone. Uh, you have to take, you don't have to take the 10 days off um, uh, like you do with naltrexone. You can just kind of start it within a few days and then titrate onto it. But it is more difficult to come off in the end. If you're on it for a year or two, it's, it's, it's similar or worse than coming off of heroin as is the word on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just learned in a conference recently, in fact, it was out of Harvard that um uh, and as I've seen some other research on it. It's good to know that naltrexone or Vivitrol, especially, let's say Vivitrol is the IM version, and buprenorphine both have similar effectiveness, actually. Um, now, again, they're different drugs, mm-hmm. but um, uh, it's important to know that because people do need a choice. And, and what we're running into over time, too, is those who have been on a buprenorphine, which can be, again, life-saving, helpful, mm-hmm. all the above, um, uh, and when they do want to come off of it, um, now there's more research. They're trying to find out how do you do that and what's the best way to give these people support so they can come off the buprenorphine and, mm-hmm. and either switch over to, you know, to Vivitrol. Probably. Yeah. Uh, we don't know all the research around it yet. but And how often do you give the Vivitrol shot? Is it monthly or – once monthly, okay. yeah, it um sometimes wears off around that three week mark to some degree, and there's ways of dealing with that. But mm-hmm. it is a once monthly injection, or you can do oral naltrexone uh, once daily, mm-hmm. and it hangs around even after if you stop taking it. If you've gotten it on board, you can stop for three or four days, or even a week, and it still has effect. But um, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, there's so much to it. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for trying to steer me because well, I can go on and. Well, no, I mean, I, I, that's, I mean, I appreciate that. And I, I told Nate, I said, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on was, you know, I mean, there's, there's the whole harm management, um, mm-hmm. you know, conversation and, um, all of that. But I was curious too about, um, just, uh, you know, the mental health issues when, uh, people have something, you know, like a, a, 
quote, bipolar disorder that they've been uh, given a diagnosis of and things like that. Um, how, li- how likely is it that a person is going to be suffering with a, you know, quote, mental illness along with addiction? Oh, my goodness. So that is there is a statistic for that. And I don't know it off the top of my head. And I want to say uh, 60 percent comes to mind mm-hmm. um, in that 60 percent of persons with addiction disorders um, have a co-occurring mental health disorder. But it could be flipped the other way. So please don't quote me. Yeah, I'd have to look at my lectures. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's fair. That's fine. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, quite common. Let's say that um, in my own practice. Um, it is more often a person will have a co-occurring disorder than not. Mm-hmm. Um, there are those who get clean and absolutely function very well and have a great prognosis. Um, and then the others um, have a co-occurring disorder that can be treated even better when they are clean. Mm-hmm. Because using different substances can really exacerbate and flip the mood, including cannabis. I've seen that, and there's research around that showing it can it can uh, make it even more difficult to treat depression and anxiety if a person is using cannabis. Although there are ideas that it can help with those things, <laughs> so more will be revealed. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned. Uh, earlier on that, you know, perhaps you would not have survived had fentanyl been around when you were active in your addiction. And it just piqued my interest. I just heard somebody yesterday who does a lot of work with the homeless population in Nashville telling me how fentanyl is just ravaging that uh, population right now. Mm. How, but, and I'm, I'm ignorant really about fentanyl and what its effects are and how it's affecting folks at all strata of society. Is there anything you can add to that uh, conversation that'll enlighten me? Uh, so I'm, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert on fentanyl as, as a drug per se. Um, and from a pharmacological standpoint, other than um, it is extremely potent. And then you have carfentanil, which is even uh, more potent, which is like, uh, um, and I, I, in my chemistry mind, it, analog may be the correct word, but it's or the metabolite mm-hmm. of um, of fentanyl. Um, it's 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 even more potent. So to give you an idea, um, if you look at a, a sweet and low, something like just a, a few grains of sweet and low is enough to overdose and, and kill a person of of carfentanil. Of fentanyl, about six grains of sugar basically is enough to overdose a person. And so people are putting this in all kinds of different drugs now and making pills uh, uh, that look like other pills like Xanax or hydrocodone, which are usually uh, uh, one would not kill someone. But most recently um, there was a person who in fact took an ecstasy pill that had fentanyl in it. They thought it was ecstasy, one pill and it killed them. Um, So all it takes is one. I knew a young adult, a adolescent, actually. His his friend took one hydrocodone that was supposed to be hydrocodone. It was fentanyl, and it killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are dying uh, just from one dose yeah. of this stuff. It's an opiate. Fentanyl is. It's a synthetic opiate. And wow. the reason they put these in other, um, along with other substances, is to potentially increase the... Um, efficacy of the high and minimize the amount of the other 
substance they need or what what would be a reason to put fentanyl in with heroin for instance um so yeah a lot of heroin is not heroin anymore it's just fentanyl so fentanyl is really easily easily smuggled it's manufactured um i guess easier than actually heroin because heroin takes uh, as far as i understand it you know morphine opium mm-hmm. poppies all mm-hmm. the above um with fentanyl i think it's more of a lab a lab thing and um and it's such a potent drug that the smallest amounts can then be blown up into hundreds of thousands of pills mm-hmm. and so for you know, for, from that standpoint, it, you're going to make a lot more money off a smaller amount of something, and it's easier to smuggle. And people can order it through the dark web, which is a whole nother story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this uh, this whole market has expanded, and youth are able to access that so much easier. It's it's a scary world in a lot of ways when it comes to this, and it's just I think it's kind of the beginning. I think it can get worse over time. Mm-hmm. It, I'm afraid, yeah, um, because of the access. Well, I'm grateful that you have found a way to um, serve. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, ongoing service to other sufferers is key to my own continued recovery sobriety. Would you say that's true for you? Yeah. Can I say on that standpoint, it's like the volunteer work. I still, so me, I'm a, I, I found that 12-step program and it dovetailed mm-hmm. into all the other things I had searched for God and spirituality and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was compatible. Um, so it's, it, but I, I, and I still give back. So I'm still involved in that. I still go to meetings. Um, I helped start a meeting in Franklin, um, in November, 2017 called family is forever. Uh, and it's still going on. Um, and, wow. Uh, so I still do that meeting on Thursday nights. Um, and I've been a member of home groups and service work in that, in the 12 step, field um so i'm still still just another recovering addict you know Mm -hmm. in that capacity and and even in my own practice certainly will pull out sort of 12-step uh ways of i learned so much about working with people through the 12-step program Mm -hmm. so i use that modality often um, in my own practice volunteers uh, all the above absolutely it's been integral and yeah. Keeps me sober too. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Chance, how would people get in touch with you if they'd like to take advantage of your services and the work that you're doing? How, how can people get reach you and find out more? Sure. I kind of fly under the radar a little bit. <laughs> um, so I, I practice two days a week and, and, um, I, uh, uh, you can, my my telephone number is 615-297-1550, so you're welcome to text or call that number. Okay. Um, I don't actually have a website for my practice, nor do, nor am I on Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And somewhat by design, honestly, because it's kind of been a, a grassroots word of mouth. And I, I uh, most people who are teaching in the nursing school have their own practice as well, or have a practice, because that's part of the holistic piece of, of mm-hmm. teaching nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so at this time that, yeah, I teach or practice two days a week. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can, you can do that. You can look me up at Vanderbilt's uh, school of nursing website as well. Chance Allen. And um, my email address is there if you wanted to reach me that way, but uh, whatever. Oh, can I put a plug in quickly? Absolutely. American association of men in nursing. Um, so men are a minority in the world of nursing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So about just like social work, about 10% are male. 
um, in both of those, uh, 10 to 12 to 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to increase the numbers of that. So I'm, I've helped the school and, um, and, and, uh, we, uh, we've got a, a men in nursing affinity group. So I've, I've, I'm a member of American Association of Men in Nursing and trying to, uh, just get the word out, you know, that they're, that we're trying to increase the numbers of men in nursing and access, uh, and, people that like me didn't know that people could do nursing or have be a nurse practitioner um, of psychiatry or any other type. Um, and uh, it's just not on the radar for a lot of people. So, so I'm, I'm all about that. If uh, any, anyone wants to contact me and are thinking about becoming a nurse practitioner or want to, want to learn more about nursing mm-hmm. um, male or female, of course, um, I, I'd be happy to talk with you about, about it. Great. Well, thank you. I'm awesome. I'm hoping people will take advantage of that. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, Chance. This has been uh, a real enjoyable and enlightening conversation. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back for a final word. Uh, we can see the guest and the guest can see us. Our listeners can't see our guest or, you know, his surroundings. Right. So wonder what Chance looks like. He looks like your average uh, grunge rock star. Is that the right way to put it? Yeah, I'd say so. He's got that down, the look. and uh, He's the got vibe. the look down. He's got the dreads and everything. And then behind him was all this musical gear. Yeah. In in what appeared to be the basement of his home. Yeah. Because he has other interests and he works with musicians and is integrating music, starting to integrate music into his practice so that you can see he's got this, there's passion all around this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping, you know, we would have had more time to get to some of the music work that he's doing, that he's just yeah. begun doing with, uh, you know, some uh, of the places here in town, Porter's Call and some of the nonprofits yeah. that work with musicians and entertainers and all of that. But uh, but he's got some really cool things going on. And, and it is fun to see, uh, you know, where everybody is when they're, when they're bringing uh, their stories to us. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to say too, is I am so grateful for recovering people getting into the medical uh, clinical communities of this, because there's been such a, in the past, there's been such a chasm between a medical understanding of addiction and the ways that uh, those of us that have been through programs and 12 step and mm-hmm. uh, treatment and all of that might approach it. And I love hearing when recovering people are stepping into the clinical spaces and really beginning to, um, to, to bridge that understanding and helping the 12 step and, and recovering communities right. understand right. medicine and the role that it could potentially play in helping people. So um, I'm really grateful for chance and his story and the way he, uh, you know, uh, articulated all of that for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before we go, remind our listeners, if you will, uh, about our sponsor. Yes, our gracious, uh, wonderful sponsor is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com. And again, we can go to BetterHelp.com slash Positive Sobriety, and uh, you can get a discount on your initial um 
your initial uh, subscription, you can talk with the same therapist every time. Or if that's not a perfect fit, you can uh, adjust that and change therapists, no charge. You can talk to these folks on a regular basis and they will handle anything with you from anxiety, depression, to uh, any other issue you would go to any mainstream counseling for. So betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of another conversation. Gosh, I love that we get a chance to have these weekly conversations. Yeah. Me looking too. at the calendar, I can see you're, you're filling it up with, with a great menu of upcoming guests. Yeah, we're filling up for the summer. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, then, I guess until next week, I'm Nate. I'm David. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 